Okay, we are still in chapter number three. Uh, we are to the last of the seven letters to the seven churches. And as we studied through here, I hope it's kind of been revealed to you that each one of these churches, even though they had some things in common with one another, they were all distinctly different. And you would find the same things true with every church. I mean, there's certain things about a Springs Presbyterian Church that binds it, in essence, to the PCA. But even within the PCA, you'd find that churches uh, vary, sometimes from very contemporary to some very traditional types of churches. Uh, and I really do believe this, that in the midst of all of this, we need to be trying to figure out what, what God's intention is for Springs Presbyterian Church. I mean, this is where all this stuff really comes to bear for you and for me. And that is, what is the message that we should be getting in regard to what he would have us do as a body of believers uh, here in this little teeny town of Dunellen, Florida, that most people would consider to be insignificant uh, but we know that the Lord doesn't uh, because we happen to be here. So we're thankful for that. Okay, so verse 14, and we're going to read through, chapter, through verse 22. I don't believe we're going to get all the way through here this morning, uh, but we'll give it a shot. So beginning with verse 14 in chapter 3, and, the angel, uh, and to the angel of the church in Laodicea, uh, or Laodicea, it actually in Greek is Laodicea. <laughs> Write uh, the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning uh, of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth, because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, uh, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire that you may become rich and white garments that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and I salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So are we listening to what the Spirit is saying? Uh, Laodicea, one of those seven churches there that were concentrated in southwestern Asia Minor probably somewhat related to one another. 
We do know that there was a close relationship between this church and a church in Colossae. Now, you've heard of Colossae before, right? Paul wrote the letter to the Colossians. It was very, very close to Laodicea. Uh, And that should tell us something, that, uh, that even though these letters are written specifically to these particular churches, that they were not the only presence of Christ in that area. And we know this, that in Paul's letter to the Colossians, he mentions Laodicea. And what he says there is that this letter that I'm writing to you needs to be read to the Laodicean church. And the one that I'm writing to the Laodicean church, by the way, which we don't have, should be read in the church in Colossae. Originally, this town was named Diospolis, which literally means city of Zeus. It was the king of the Greek gods. So we need to understand something from the beginning, because we've read with all of these other cities, there was a close and great and lasting influence of Greek culture upon them. We also know that, uh, that Laodicea came under Roman rule in 133 B.C. So it's the same old picture that we've seen over and over again, and that is that that these Christians were confronted constantly with idol worship, not only of Greek origin, but also of Roman origin, and they were encouraged to, to, and they actually are commanded by Rome to confess Caesar as Lord and enter into Caesar worship. Like some of the other ones we've spoken about, it was a leader in commerce. There were actually three different highways that led to different areas of the empire that converged there at Laodicea. Commerce, finance, all the things that have to do with economy were big deals in this city. Wealth was common. There's a good chance, and, and, and I think some of the things we're gonna, we've read already and we're going to study more this morning indicate to us that there were some very wealthy people, if not maybe a large percentage of the people in the church were people who were better off financially. It seems as though there was little Jewish influence here. They didn't, you know, it's not mentioned in any, in here at all. We understand that very often there were significant Jewish communities in these cities. But we find in this particular letter there is no mention of anything like that. Probably Jews there, but probably not a significant number of Jews. There was persecution falling upon this church, but it wasn't coming probably from the Jewish people. It was coming more from the Romans and others. There were some hot springs that were very mineral rich in the mountains not too far away. And they made their way down to Laodicea. And it was noted for those. uh, Those springs were thought to have medicinal purposes. There was actually uh, a very famous medical center that was in Laodicea based upon that whole principle. 
as we were reading through there, something should have stepped out and maybe smacked you in the face a little bit. Uh, and that is that this letter is different than the others uh, in probably a number of aspects, but one of those that really is very obvious. And that is this. That in all these other letters that we've read, these other six letters, there have been words of commendation by Jesus. There are none here. In other words, he doesn't commend them for doing anything. He doesn't commend them for their great faith. He doesn't commend them for their great works. I don't think it's a mistake that this is the last one of these seven letters to appear in this order. I think it's a final call for the church to wake up from its slumber. I think it's a call for you and I to do the same thing. You may feel like you're in a spiritual slumber after we've gone through and we've studied these letters. Maybe you're struggling with some things now that you weren't before. I hope you are. Because you know what? I am. The letter begins, as we read with all the others, with uh, kind of an introduction of, of, of Jesus, a description of Jesus. One of the un- another unusual thing about this particular one is that what is said here about Jesus is not derived from chapter 1 in Revelation, where all the others were. First of all, he calls himself, and this is in verse 14, the Amen. Now, you've probably heard what that means, and we, we speak that word all the time. We say it in different ways, amen, amen, man, you know, etc. Uh, but we know what it means probably, right? It means truly. In other words, we, 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 when do we say it? We say it at the end of our prayers. But what it's conveying to us here is that Jesus is truth. He's absolute truth. And what he says is true because he reveals to us the truth of God. As we said before, all of these introductions really speak to the divinity of Jesus. They're all arguing that Jesus, in fact, is God. Why is Jesus truth? Jesus is truth because he is ultimately God. He's faithful and true. Anyone that reads the Gospel of John, anyone that reads any of the Gospels should be able to come to at least a conclusion from it. And one of those is this, is Jesus actually was unbelievably faithful. Faithful in doing everything necessary to obtain salvation for you and for me. Everything that took place from the time he was formed in the, the the womb of the Virgin Mary until his ascension back into heaven. Every little teeny tiny thing that people will look upon and see, well, that was really kind of an insignificant thing of Jesus' life. You need to understand that every detail of his life had to do with you and with me. Not just the big things, but all the little things in between those big things. Faithful and true. And what did he do over and over again? He was, he was the witness. If we want to know what witnessing looks like, we need to look at the life of Jesus. 
depicted not only in what he said, but also in what he did. He taught, he spoke, and he backed it all up by his life. And we've seen over and over again through these letters that we are encouraged continually to live a life that truly honors and glorifies God, to live a life in a manner that truly is worthy of being called the child of the living God. Jesus, there are people today who believe this, and they would call themselves Christians, but let me just tell you this this morning, I don't see how they possibly could be if they really believe this. There are people who believe that Jesus was basically just a good man that God sent into the world. Uh, and, and, and so what he did was he was just a role model for us. He was a pattern for us. So how do we make ourselves right with God? We be like Jesus. We do the things that Jesus did. Now let me ask you something. Is that at least part of the picture that you have? We need to understand this, that that is true, that Jesus is our witness. He is the one who shows us what living life before God really ought to look like. But we understand this, that he also lived that life and died that death to pay the penalty for our sins, that we are saved by his works. We are saved through his life that he lived. His righteousness is reckoned to us. The beginning of creation. Now, some people believe this is evidence, that this is scriptural evidence that Jesus is a created being, that he's not God, that he's just a being that that God created and sent him into the world to show us again what life is supposed to look like. So how do we get to heaven? We be like Jesus. You need to understand that is not what's being conveyed in this at all. He's the beginning of creation. He is the source of creation. The Gospel of John tells us that everything, absolutely everything that has ever been created, it was created by him. And we understand this, that creation is an attribute of God, and God only can create. Can you create anything, really? Now, you can take thread and you can sew a dress together, or you can do something like this and the other, but, but did you make the thread from nothing? Did you make the material from nothing? That is what creation is, and that is the, this ability that God has and God only has to speak forth words any universe comes into existence from nothing. If that doesn't blow our mind, I don't know what possibly will. This is Jesus. This is the Jesus that people contended with. I know your deeds. As we're going to read through here, we're going to get the idea that he's not talking about this in a positive way. So often when he's made that statement, this is the fifth time he said this in these letters. I know your works. I know your deeds. I see what you're doing. I hear what you're doing or what you're saying. There are no secrets. And he's commended these other churches for this. What I would say as we read through here, we're going to get the idea that there really are not good works here. Not much to speak about. 
He sees what they're doing, and it's reflective of what they believe. You're neither hot nor cold. Neither hot nor cold. I can remember early on in, in my walk, I had a conversation with a person, and that, that person was just saying, he was just really great that you become a believer, and you know, this and that, and you know, I prayed for you, and I hope for you, and so on, and so on, and so on. Uh, but don't become one of those fanatic Christians. It's okay that you believe. It's a good thing that you believe. But don't let it dominate your life. Don't be on fire for Jesus. Don't change your life for Jesus. If I told you who that was, you'd be shocked. Because that person is not the same person today that they were when they said it. I don't believe for a minute. How would we describe our own faith? Are we cold? Are we hot? Are we somewhere in between? If Jesus doesn't fire us up, I don't know what possibly could. Seriously. I mean, if we're going to be fanatical about anything, we need to be fanatical about our faith in him, right? About him. In the next verse, he describes him as being lukewarm. Now, what do you think about that? You think there might be a lot of church people today that might possibly fit into that category of being lukewarm. They're not really absolutely cold, because let me just say this. Cold faith is no faith. If your faith is dead cold, it is useless, it's worthless, it's not going to save anybody. And it's not real faith in Jesus Christ. Hot water, cold water, if it's cold enough, will kill infectious bacteria. We actually use those things as sterilizing agents at some at different points. For instance, how do we prolong uh, the lifespan of meat that we have or whatever? We freeze it, right? Why? Because that kills and protects it, it kills bacteria and protects it from bacterial infection, invasion. We use heat as a source to sterilize instruments when we're doing surgery. Why? To kill bacteria that might cause infection, that might cause disease. On the other hand, my friends, lukewarm environments, lukewarm water causes bacteria to thrive. It loves it. Jesus hates this fence riding. He says that I would rather you be absolutely cold. 
than to be just lukewarm. It really shows you where, well, it, you know, what I'm talking about here is this. Is a lukewarm person is someone that has some attributes of having faith, but at the same time, some other, some other things going on that make you wonder if that faith is real and genuine. See, this is why Jesus hates the middle ground so much, and that is because there may be appearance of faith, but at the same time, there's the appearance of bad things that give people the wrong impression of what faith is. And he says this. He said he would rather you be cold or hot than in between. In other words, don't ride the fence. And I think there are a whole lot of people today that are riding the fence. They want enough of Jesus to have some sense of assurance that they're going to heaven. But at the same time, he's not the key focal point of their whole life. Unfortunately, there's some people today that believe that that Jesus basically is nothing more than our ticket to heaven. We have our ticket to heaven, therefore it really doesn't matter what I do in my life. But you've heard me say this before, guys and gals, that is a concept that is foreign to Scripture. That over and over again, we are encouraged to be hot for Jesus. Not to be cold. And not even to be lukewarm. He says here that he's going to come and spew them or spit them out of his mouth. You know what it literally says? Some translations say this, and I don't know why some of them don't. Because in the Greek, what it says is, I'm going to come, and I'm going to vomit you. I'm going to puke you. I'm going to throw you up out of my mouth because your faith makes me sick. Or what you call faith makes me sick. Now, we don't like even to talk about stuff like that, do we? But, I mean, I, I, let me just say this to you this morning. That is sometimes Jesus uses very strong language, and I don't think you can get, a, get around Jesus using really strong language in this particular letter. I mean, this is not the comfy, cozy Jesus that we always want to very often picture. This is Jesus that is serious about very serious business. About a trap that so many people fall into. That is believing that you can be a believer and at the same time continue to live a very worldly life. 
guy I used to work with told me this story one day, and he was, there were a lot of people that were, you know, I was in the nuclear industry, and there were a lot of people that were ex-nuclear Navy guys, submarine guys. Uh, and he told me the story one day about how they were out on maneuvers or something, and an alarm came across that there was a live torpedo in the water. And he said, you wouldn't have believed it. You know, every, before that, people walking around, behaving as if there were no God, using the Lord's vain, name in vain, constantly, continually, unrelentingly. No thought of God, no discussion of God, no anything about God. He said, every man on that boat fell down on their knees and began to pray to God that he would save them from this crisis. But what happened was when it became apparent that it was a false alarm, they all sighed a breath of relief. And then business went back to business as usual. See, my friends, very often people want God when they're in crisis. You see it all the time. People get close to death's door and they may have lived a life apart from God completely up to that point. At least they think they have. And very often, they wonder. And you know this, you go to funerals. And every funeral you've ever been to in your life, the picture that's painted is that person is in heaven now. Doesn't matter, you know, whether they lived a life that reflected Christ at all. I know some dirty, rotten scoundrels. Went to their funeral, and everybody's encouraged to believe they're in heaven. That's not the Bible. That's not my opinion. You see, there's two sides to the coin. One of those is. Blessings through faith in Christ, the kingdom of God. And the other one is God's judgment. Every person will endure. Sometimes I think we have this idea, because you do it, I do it. Sometimes we're not bold enough for Christ. Sometimes we settle for lukewarm. Sometimes we grasp at straws. If someone ever even mentioned the name of Jesus in their whole lifetime, we conclude they were a believer. When it comes to things like funerals. But one of the things we need to glean from these letters is over and over again, Jesus is saying what you believe is reflected in what you do. You can't get away from it. That if you really believe, it will be demonstrated in the manner in which you live your life. (laughs) 
Because you say that I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. These people were wealthy people. There's a sense in which they had become self-sufficient. They no longer saw how much they needed Jesus in some ways. They forgot that God was the one who blessed them financially. And I would imagine that some of them got to the point that they believed that the wealth that they had was God's reward for their faithfulness to him. And they began to think things like this. Well, so-and-so doesn't have as much as I do. And look at them. You know, they're way down on the totem pole and whatever. It must be because God favors me because I have such great faith and they don't have any. Let me ask you a serious question. Do you think this might be an issue in the American culture of today? Wealth is everywhere. Wealth is encouraged everywhere. We said it a hundred times, and that is we, we praise God for this nation that we celebrate this week. Because it has given us a goodness of life that the majority of people in this world in all of its history have not come close to knowing. A very great sacrifice on the part of all kinds of people. When it comes to finances and money things and possessions, we need to remember one simple principle. And if we do this, it'll make a huge difference in the way that we do everything. That is, none of this stuff is actually mine. None of it is. It's all his. My car, my house, my this, my that. It is his. It's easy for us to fall into this trap. Well, you know, I tithe. And let me tell you, if you're tithing, you're doing something the vast majority of people in churches don't do. The problem with it very often is we begin to feel rival about it. Because we can say, well, you know, I'm I'm tithing. I'm giving 10% of everything that comes in the door to God. That's what he tells me to do. So I'm being faithful to him with it. Don't fall into that trap. None of it's yours. Nothing. Not even the clothes on your back belong to you. It's all his stuff that he entrusts us to use for his good, for his Think about the parable of the sower, which we brought up a couple of times as we started this series. And, you know, think about the seed that fell amongst the thorns and the thistles. See, these are the people that are in, 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 this, in this danger, and they don't even know it. See, this is the crazy thing about it. These people are in mortal danger, and, and it just passes by their notice completely. They think that they were in wonderful shape. K. 
Can you imagine? That we got a letter in the mail this week from God. Okay, from Jesus. What do you think it would say to us? Seriously. As a church body, as individuals. Where there be commendations? I would hope so. I would think so. But do you think that Jesus would not challenge us with anything? You think he wouldn't encourage us in some ways to change the manner in which we're doing this, that, or the other? Do you think that we've, we've evolved into this absolutely perfect church that always does everything the right way and always we're always doing God's will as he's revealed it to us? What about yourself? You need to understand something. If you ask these people what their personal spiritual assessment was of themselves, they would shine like the sun. But Jesus doesn't see it that way. We all do this. We all have this idea that I can, you know, if I look around and I can always find people that are apparently worse than me. You know, I'm not murdering people and I'm doing this, that, and the other. Then we feel like we're in a good shape. What would Jesus say to us? What would be in the letter that Jesus would write to Springs Presbyterian Church? Of course, we don't know. And I'm not going to speculate. But one of the things that really has become almost a disease in our culture is this, is people never hear the hard things of God any longer. A lot of people don't. It's only the good things. It's only the easy things. It's only the wonderful things. And can you imagine? You, you, let's just say it's a Sunday morning and the church in Laodicea is meeting for their worship service. And then Jesus walks in the back door. And he comes up front and he speaks these words that are written in this letter to this church. How do you think they would receive it? I'd imagine it'd be like being hit in the head with a sledgehammer. Because you need to understand, they believed that they were in good shape. Spiritually. And Jesus is basically saying to them, that's maybe what you believe, but your faith is dead. You don't have faith. You have faith in something. 
faith in wealth, faith in this, faith in that. But your faith's not really in me. Faith in your position. Maybe you're very well off and you're high up in the community in all kinds of ways. He gives them advice in verse 18. I advise you. He doesn't say I command you or demand that you do this. He says, I advise you. And that's what it means, advise. I counsel you. I encourage you. To buy from me gold refined by fire. That you may become rich. You who are rich. That you will actually begin to understand and realize. What real wealth is. What the important wealth is. It's not in the riches of this world. It's not in money. It's not in all the stuff that money can buy. It's through having a living, breathing, not lukewarm, not cold relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We consider gold to be very precious, right? How much gold is in this room? People have rings and people have necklaces and earrings and and this, that, and the other, considered to be very precious, you know, amongst people. But the thing about it is, guys, is we know there's something that far is far more precious than these things. Build your treasures in heaven, not on earth. The words of Jesus. Spiritual gold is what is valuable beyond compare, beyond belief. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Some people believe that uh, my job on Sunday morning is to encourage people to just to believe that they're saved. And I think I do that a lot of the time. We need to understand something. We can have assurance of salvation. Don't let this shake you from your your assurance of salvation. Then what it's got to do, guys, is shake us up. Jesus says these things to stir the pot. So that business is just not business as usual over and over and over and over again. 
There is no more important message than the gospel. It doesn't exist. Never has, never will. Live it. Breathe it. Be on fire for it. We'll wrap up next week.